Welcome to Watershed's December podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove and I've got a slightly froggy throat as I have succumbed to a bit of the December cold. Apologies for the croaky voice. However, uh, this podcast, we are talking about what happened in the year 2019 in cinema and looking back on films that we have enjoyed and films that we might not necessarily have enjoyed. And I am joined by Thea Berry, who is Watershed Cinema Producer, and she's covering maternity for Tara Judah, who has joined us for this look back on the year. Just to kick off, then, what, what kind of features or trends or things strike you as you look over 2019? So, I mean, for me, it was an incredibly strong year. I actually found it difficult to whittle down a list. I found lots of great films that I saw over 2019, which is good. Maybe not as strong as last year, because I think last year I said it was one of the, the great years, but actually a really, really strong year. Great British cinema was a big theme for me this year. There were yeah. multiple British films. Sometimes I don't get any British films in my top 10. I think there's at least three in my top 10 this year. It was a great year for British cinema. And the other thing for me was a little bit on the slightly more negative side is that I was disappointed with how much was invested in an, a lot of American cinema that I, I, I think meant that people were leaving out other great world cinema. A lot of the indie, American indie titles got a lot of attention this year. And I'm not saying that they weren't good films or that people didn't enjoy them, that's fine. But I think it was at the detriment, actually, of a lot of really great world mm. cinema. And there were a lot of films that just kind of came and went. And I know that's a problem with there being so many films on release. Uh, but I think we need to give a bit more of a spotlight to some yeah. of those really brilliant films from countries and from places that kind of don't get noticed. Things like the, the only Lebanese film that's ever screened, which is Freedom Fields, you know, that hardly anyone saw was a fantastic documentary, but it just was a victim of uh, there being too many other tentpole films that kind of took the limelight. But this is, this is the thing, this is the context in which we are in, which is just in cinema alone, there are over 900 films released in the cinema. That's not even counting event cinema, so you, you'll get your opera, you'll get your theatre as well. Plus, you've then also got what's happening on online and streaming platforms. So audiences have a huge choice, um, but just sticking with cinema, you know, I read a statistic which said, um, you know, of those 900 films released, 600 of them make up 6% of the box office. Yeah. Which is a terrifying statistic, because you think about all these wonderful films, and what we will be talking about is the 6%, and we won't even be talking about the 6%, we'll probably be talking about less than 1%. <laughs> Um, so, because we've got to remember that independent cinema is, 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 whilst we, you know, great responses from audiences, great films, I mean, looking through it, I completely agree. I think world cinema has been fantastic. This year, I think British cinema um, has actually been really, really strong, um, which is great. I, mean, I, I don't know why I have to say has actually. This is so you've got to sort of qualify it. But there's a real, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but but yeah, all the discussion does seem to be. I mean, what what dominated I think this year was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm -hmm. Quentin Tarantino, and Joker. I think feel to me as though they really dominated the sort of discussion. Yeah. Um, now I didn't screen. Um, I didn't see either of them. We, we didn't. We didn't. <laughs> we didn't. You see, well, this is this is the thing is that there's a lot of films out there, you know, and also you've had other concerns. Just 
trying to watch all of the world cinema. I mean, you know, yeah, like, yeah. it's no. also about preferences. And, you know, if, if the choices were yeah. to see Joker or Pain and Glory, I would go see Pain and Glory. Mm. Yeah. And, and the, but the thing is that we've always got to remember is that these films, and particularly Hollywood now, comes with huge marketing budgets. So they do dominate, not just whatever you think about the films, but they do dominate um, in terms of publicity, in terms of promotion in terms of um, discussion. The thing is that audiences are more informed about titles and they have a groundswell of opinions out there before the films come out and we are prejudging work. And I think that, that also this is a thing that I think is a concern is that people's time is very limited, I understand that, but it means that people often want a guarantee that they will enjoy a film before they go see it. And that's... And, and film... Or that there is something about the film that... that they can talk about or they, they can you know they, they can yeah. engage in the pub the wider public discussion about films. But so I think actually this idea of knowing that what you're spending your money on and means you'll have a good yeah. time yeah. is actually quite dangerous for the concept. It's all right as for the blockbusters, cinema as entertainment, but it doesn't work for cinema as you know, as a kind of cultural or artistic engagement. Um, because like artwork in a gallery, like performance art, like theatre, etc. if we think about cinema as a cult, which I know, you know, in this particular circle, what we're discussing, we do think of cinema as um, something cultural and artistic, then actually it needs to be okay that you would go see something and not know if you're going to enjoy it or not. And it needs to be okay if you don't enjoy it. Yeah, but, but also I think, um, you know, in addition to that, there are films, and there's one in my top 10, which is the Chinese film So Long, My Son, mm. which delivers all those pleasures. I mean, which delivers all the... It delivers everything that the, every, uh, the, the Irishman actually it delivers in a way, because mm -hmm. it's a, a story that's told across time and generations and cross-cuts between um, different decades. But, you know, it's not got... It's not directed by Martin Scorsese, it's not got Joe Pesci, it's not got, you know, the re-teamed re Pesci, De Niro, Keitel. Um, so it's just, it's really tough to get audiences, but I know, I can guarantee, um, listen to me, I can guarantee <laughs> that if audiences come to that um, and it opens in this month, um, that they will get an absorbing, yeah. uh, intimate family drama mm. that will reduce them to tears. Yeah. Um, so there is also, you know, these this part of world cinema that's that's got all those ingredients but just doesn't register at all. Uh, well, it does register. We try and make it register here at Watershed. <laughs> but it doesn't, it, it has a lot of work to do to punch through. And I think that's one of the things that's happened in, um, with that sort of domination of what there's these films that make, you know, there's five films that make 95% of the box office. Mm. So everything else trying to, you know, get get through that. And I think about Harry Whitliff's Only You, which which I thought, um, British film, um, I thought was really fantastic. Again, you know, small drama, but it just got lost. You know, absolutely got lost. And this is the real struggle that all those other, those 600 films yeah. <laughs> actually have to do. Well, I think this is the, the key to why, and you know, what, what we try to do here very much is to create conversations and spaces for the films to have a little bit some space for them to breathe, uh, precisely because there, you know, there are so many films coming out, and it is really difficult. Completely understand the demand to keep on top of. You know, I mean, there's tons of films I didn't manage to see this year, and I spend all my time trying to see films. But it is really difficult. So we do need to give them spaces to to breathe for people to be able to engage with the films a bit more deeply. And I think that's one of the things that probably, in, you know, also in trends and highlights this year is that 
having conversations and Q and A's um, really gives space yeah. to that, mm -hmm. and, it, and it enables people to engage in a much deeper way with the work, which I think is really fantastic. And that, for me, is always the positive. So well, you know, I've said what I think the negatives are, but actually yeah. the positive for me is like in having those spaces mm -hmm. where we can actually yeah. give attention to those films that need it. And actually, um, what's been really strong this year is the amount of Q and A's and the amount of visiting. Um, both filmmakers, yeah. mm. but also our own conversations about cinema, deaf conversations about cinema, opportunities, as you say, for audiences to go a bit deeper um, with the film. And I think the, cute, the the directors and you know talent associated with the film coming out has has been really it's happening more, and it's been really interesting. I think the way in which distributors, it's partly obviously to raise profile, but I think it is a, a way of connecting mm -hmm. with the audience. We, Tara, you and I have just come back from. Europa Cinemas conference, um, and in that I thought it was really interesting that they said that um, the European Commission, actually it was somebody from the European Commission, a politician that said this, um, that cinemas are the point of contact with citizens. Mm. And I thought that was, it really mm. struck me um, there that you've got all this production, I mean, how connected is Hollywood <laughs> studios with citizens, yeah. you know, how connected is the production process with citizens, how connected are distributed, it's actually cinemas are the point at which well, the community People come building. together. And I mean, I think that's what we, we, definitely what we saw in that conference. And I think that is true of what, what Watershed does is that it isn't about just putting films on for people to see. It is actually about building communities and spaces for, for kind of conversation, spaces for engagement, spaces for people to connect. And that connection is really valuable, uh, like you say, and it is, cinema is a tool through which to meet people. Mm. Um, and I think that is the key, is that it is about bringing those things together. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's going to be in, well, I think in my top films this year, but the documentary for Sama and the Q&A that we had after that is probably one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in a cinema because mm -hmm. um, it is such a heartbreaking and devastating film to watch. But the atmosphere in the cinema was something I'd never really experienced before when everybody was leaving, sort of making sure that people were okay or sort of there was a community atmosphere that had built over this sort of hour and a half of the film and then the half an hour discussion mm. which was and we had there was someone in the audience who had just moved to Bristol from Somalia it was his second day in Bristol and he'd come to this and he said that mm. it was important to know that for him that he'd seen films like this so it's obviously not directly his experience but something that he's familiar with mm. and that people are engaging <coughs> with this subject matter and yeah, I think that's something that I'll always remember. It's been the standout mm. um, cinema experience for me. And I think I remember uh, we when we screened Leto, the Russian film, mm. um, which again I was going to feature quite highly in my top ten. <laughs> um, but again, somebody you, you were saying yes. here that there was there was somebody who had grown up in Russia, yeah, who's yeah. based in Bristol, and who saw the who saw themselves reflected in the yeah. In well, the he, film. he came over. Well, first of all, he came over and asked me how I found this film. And I suddenly got a bit worried. I don't know why. I was, I was, like, uh, what was I not supposed to? I don't know. You've heard of the Russian <laughs> we've, we've, heard, we've seen, we've seen uh, programs about Russian mafia. Yeah. So he came up and he just he thanked uh, us for showing it. And that he'd seen his mm. youth experience up on screen as something mm. that he'd never seen before in Britain on screen. Mm. And I think just having that, knowing that you've caused that connection for one person Mm. Um, shows the power yeah, of the it's, cinema. It's, it's very, it's very powerful. Mm. I mean, one of, one of the, I've got to mention it because one of the big shifts and trends for me is, of course, Netflix. Mm -hmm. uh, this time last year, I was moaning 
my head <laughs> off about we not, all remember. not being able to show Roma. Mm. And that was because, you know, it was a Netflix production. Netflix are not in the business of distributing. Um, they're called disruptive, but they're not disruptive. Digital is disruptive in my mind. But anyway, um, that's another topic. But Netflix not making this film available, or only in a very um, private deal with another exhibitor, distributor. So it took three months of negotiations to get Roma for two screenings. We did it, but, you know, I it, it um, drained me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> And especially being asked by audiences, why aren't you screening this, you know, great film that's been nominated now one and now there's like, I can't get it. I mean, that was my argument. You've got to make stuff available. If you can't, yeah. if you aren't making it available, you know, just be honest about it. And then now, uh, every every week I'm, I'm opening a Netflix <laughs> film. So, you know, it started with Steven Soderbergh's The Laundromat. It continues through to Fernando Moraes' uh, Two Popes, which opens this month. We've just screened The Irishman which, you know, for me, it's just been fantastic because, you know, I'm somebody that would want to screen the new Martin Scorsese film. But when I was in Toronto at the film festival, I... Because what I've been doing at film festivals in Berlin earlier in the year in Cannes, whenever a film was a Netflix film, I just wouldn't bother going to see it because, as much as I might be interested in seeing it, mm. I knew I wasn't going to be able to screen it at Watershed, so why bother going to see it? You know, I've got to get through. There's a whole load of other 600 and more films to get through. <laughs> So, you know, conserve energy and time. But, and then Toronto, I went to see um, The Two Popes, which is about, indeed, The Two Popes, um, the, the rat singer who resigned. And, of course, popes can't resign. You've got the job for life, folks, you know. So you can't... So this was a very unusual, but it was a shift in, in, a shift in the, the uh, papacy and, of course, all the underlying issues that, were, that, that that was about. But, you know, one of the things I really wanted to see was, was Anthony Hopkins acting with Jonathan Price, such a brilliant casting, you know, great actors, now of an age where they can play, they can play two popes. Um, so I sat in the press screening and um, the Netflix logo comes up. I just think, oh, I can't, I think I've got to go, you know, just like my brother stay. I thought, no, no, I, want, I really want to see these two acting together. They were brilliant. Uh, and it is a really intelligent film because it is about shifts in um, where Catholicism sits in relationship to society. Yeah, Fernando Marais, who did City of God, I mean, understands the Latin American situation, the new popes from Latin America. So there's a lot of politics in there as well, as well as watching two very fine performances. And then I came out and a couple of days later find out that um, Netflix and Altitude have done a deal and these films are going to be made, going to be made available. So we've gone head-spinningly um, round on that issue and, and now some of them, although it's not all... It's not all rosy because I, I would have loved Matty Diop's Atlantics, mm. which I know is getting one screening in Bristol at The Cube. It was a film that Netflix bought at Cannes, so they didn't produce it. So it's, it's their films that they produced that they are releasing into cinemas. It's not films that they buy at festivals. So Matty Diop's, it's a fantastic film and I would love... To, it deserved to be opened theatrically in the way that, it would, you know, what happens with cinema and get that profile. Um, and it's only getting single screenings um, in cinemas across the UK. So we're, we're, we're almost there. But let's start talking about the films. Tara, you mentioned world cinema. Um, what, what's, what was some of the high points then? And so, I mean, I, I have to say, the, the film in particular that, that really blew me away this year, and it's probably, I think, the th my th very close, not my top film, but maybe my third film of the year, like really, really fantastic film, um, and I think very few people saw it, which makes me incredibly sad because it 
especially because it must be seen on a cinema screen. It is it would be criminal to watch this on a small screen. Um, and that's Zsa Zsenke's Ashes Purest White, uh, the kind of informal conclusion to his trilogy uh, that spanned from the early 2000s, um, follows on a little bit unofficially from Still Life, all the kind of politics and the backdrop of the Three Gorges Dam in China, um, fantastic performances, and also it's a genre film. I mean, you know, this should have been, and, and, and my, I guess my argument in some ways is that once upon a time, this would have been one of the biggest films released in in the year. Housewives should have yeah. been, and I think it's criminal that it wasn't. Um, you know, this 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 is kind of like this fantastic Asian cinema tradition of uh, really fantastic, thrilling genre cinema. It's a thriller. It's a drama. Uh, there's 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 nothing inaccessible about it. It's a little bit violent, I would say. You know, the opening sequence has got quite a lot of quite a lot of death. <laughs> so there is a there is that tradition as well. But that kind of cinema, things like Infernal Affairs, you know, those sorts of films used to be um, tentpole blockbuster films for the art house. Mm. And so I guess I expected. I saw Ashes Purest White at a festival at Rotterdam at the start of the year, and I expected when it came to the UK for it to be one of those huge films. Um, and I think it was released the exact same week as Eighth Grade, uh, Bo Burnham's film. Doesn't matter whether or not you love Eighth Grade, you could watch it on an iPhone. It does not need a cinema screen. It's mm -hmm. made with a YouTube aesthetic. Um, it's, not, it's not a requirement to see this in the cinema, in my opinion. It's not cinematic in those senses. It doesn't use cinematography, editing, uh, you know, the, the kind of language of film in a way that must be seen on a big screen. Um, and Ash's Purest White really just didn't get attention. And I, and I don't mean just from the public, actually. I really actually actually want to be clear that I mean also from the industry. I was really disappointed. I think the industry just let the film go. Um, I don't think that it didn't have a huge distributor, so it didn't have a big marketing spend, which is unfortunate. It didn't have champions, you know, in the way that like a lot of curators and a lot of critics tried to really get behind films last year, like Shoplifters, or tried to really get behind certain titles to kind of give them a groundswell of, of buzz. I felt like nobody wanted to get behind Ash's Purest White, and that, that really did hurt because uh, I am saying that this is one of the films of the year, and if you missed it, that, that, that's a, that you've got to find a way, even if it is on a small screen, to see it because it's <coughs> bloody brilliant. Mm. See, what were you? So I, when I was looking through my list, I was trying to find something that sort of stopped me, um, and that was Nadine Labaki's Capernaum, or mm. Capernaum which I, this is before I was working here, so I don't know about how the release sort of that it, it got here. But I saw it on a, in a Cinema 2, small audience, there was maybe eight of us, and I was just uh, blown away by the performance of the lead actor. Um, but I thought it was such a powerful film, and it reminded me of a bit of uh, Grave of Fireflies, of a, a boy in a war-torn country trying to survive, having to look after a child, a baby, and I just, Sort of, it sort of hit me out of nowhere when I wasn't, mm. when I'm not working in this industry. Things you're not surrounded by these things all the time. You don't hear the rumblings always of something, and that's a film that I told so many people to go and see, and mm. one that I continue to talk about and think about as well. And it's a really powerful yeah. film. I mean, it, it definitely. I mean, I, I cried my eyes out. Yeah. It was particularly emotional for me. I think. I, I, was newly pregnant at the time when I saw it and it's all about what happens to children so it was yeah. quite distressing but also we actually um, featured it with uh, in partnership with UE for conversations about mm. cinema uh, had a discussion with somebody who worked in international law uh, so to give that kind of perspective but also looking at the human rights angle the kind of psychology the ethics of the film um, and 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is one that is incredibly moving, but also really troubling, and I yeah. think it does stay with you for a long time. I, I would also agree that was a key film this year. Also, in terms of world cinema, I would like to say Laszlo Nemesh's uh, Sunset, Sunset yeah. didn't mm. get again, the attention that I think it should have. Um, we, we were really lucky to have him come and talk about the film. I mean, that was an incredible privilege and to screen a 35 mil print of it. Um, and if you want to talk about exquisite cinematography, I mean, you know, the same filmmaker, that, uh, the same cinematographer he worked with on Son of Saul and the detail and the, the cinematography in this film is remarkable. I mean, the whole film is about this kind of uh, circular camera action that is kind of the characters just sort of moving and moving and moving and she's moving in in a way that you actually realize cinematically is is non-linear um, and that that's why the film is so kind of I guess jarring and distracting because she's trying to move in a linear mm. direction and she can't so the whole film actually is explicated through its cinematography mm. and there are there are sequences <coughs> where you see a, a couple in a, a coach talking and there's a window at the back of the coach and you can see in perfect clarity mm. what's happening outside the coach in the distance. And he did not film any of this against a green screen. The whole thing is crap. Like that, that, that is and, actually and a person is. in the background. Everything in this film was tangibly created. Mm. The world was physical. Um, and I think it's an incredible feat of filmmaking. Yeah, um, he, he creates a world. I mean, as he did this on a soul, which holds the viewer in a, a, a kind of really interesting relationship to it. But he absolutely creates a sense of that because it's set in turn of the 19th, turn of the 20th century in Hungary. And he, he creates that world in such a, um, such a specific way that you really feel and follow, as you say, the main character through it. An incredible cinematography whereby, if you're going to watch it, it's going to be in the cinema. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there was a, um, I mean, for me, there was, this seems to be the story of films that deserved more from world cinema. And I, I was thinking of Styx, the Austrian film which even smaller distributor than Ash is the purest white, um, which, uh, you know, it's a, it's a woman who um, get a high up, powerful job, earns lots of money, but that's just a really back story filler for the reason why she's going in a yacht and sailing across the Mediterranean single-handedly, you know, and, and she then has to engage with the mig migration crisis in a very direct way. And it's really tense, but it deals with the politics of Europe at the moment. Um, and it does it in a very thrilling way, you know, in, in the conventions of the thriller. And had that been Nicole Kidman in that role, it would have, it would have, uh, and it may well end up being Nicole Kidman in that role in the remake. But it sort of dro just dropped off the radar. Um, and it was really, really strong film, as was The Chamber Made from Mexico. Oh, I um, love I loved it. Which, yeah, I mean, that was a really <coughs> fantastic film. The same distributor as Ashes of Purest White. And, and they have got really great taste in, <laughs> in acquisitions. <laughs> but this is a kind of new Mexican film, um, first feature female director. Uh, and it follows a chambermaid through in a really swanky hotel in, in Mexico. And it says a lot about class mm -hmm. and poverty and you know, economic relations and, and the, without saying it, as it were, because she's, she's of course gone into everybody's room, these mm -hmm. really, really plush uh, rooms and, and cleaning up. But it's, a, it's also about the relationships between that community of people that are cleaning um, these mm -hmm. expensive hotels. And again, the cinematography, a bit like um, in Laszlo Nemesh's film, is that it, it keeps it so tight on the, the cinemascope 
Um, it's, it's the depth of field is virtually zero, and so you're really close and just experiencing it through her. I thought it was just such a fantastic film, but again, mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, that would have been a sort of new discovery, a big, um, yeah, I mean, not a huge film, but it would have had more attention, I think. And again, we go back to that earlier statistic <laughs> uh, that I started off with, and you see how difficult it is for these films to kind of get through. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, other, other things for me, of course, the return of Almodovar, Pain and Glory, oh, yeah. which I, I went into, a bit ho hummish, terrible thing to say, isn't it? You know, thinking, right, you know. When it started, it was just like, right, okay, Pedro, you're, I know you do this stuff brilliantly. And, then, you know, everything about it is quality. It's just absolutely, you know, wonderful. It almost feels too easy. Um, so the first, you know, half an hour, I was thinking, yeah, yeah, okay. By the end of it, I, I just didn't want the film to end. I thought it was such a kind of, and particularly the end shot, just brought it all back into a kind of filmmaker meditating mm -hmm. on their life in the process of what filmmaking is. And it was very, you realised how autobiographical it was. Of course, he recreated the flat, his own flat to, mm. to film in. Um, and it's about his, it's about his, <coughs> his mother, and it's about his relationship with his mother as well. But it's about his relationship with his art. Yeah. I just thought it was a really fantastic film. His other films, and you see, oh, you've got Bad Education in there, you've got Volver with the beginning of the women, as you know, obviously Penelope Cruz washing. And I, I felt the same. I watch so many of his films, especially studying Spanish at school, they make you watch all his films. <laughs> so I was very familiar with his work and I sort of, about halfway, the first half I was like, yep, yeah, it's good, it looks great, um, everybody's great, this is wonderful. And then halfway through it's when the monologue starts, when mm. he's in a one-man show, and it complete, for me I was totally hooked and mm. I've seen it a couple of times now and I just think he is just a master of cinema. Mm. I was bold Mm. Pretty blown away. Before getting on to British cinema, I just wanted to say go back to American cinema. We've talked about the 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 you know those two films. We've talked about the teenage films, but I just wanted to say that I think Afri African American experience I think has been really strong in American cinema. Yeah, on that I'll agree. Yeah. Two of those films are in my top ten. Yeah. So 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 films like films like Monsters and Men, Blind Spotting. If Beale Street could talk, which mm. I, I'm, I know you're a big, you are a big fan of. I you're a big, in, big fan of. I mean, Tara. it's no spoiler. I said in February's yeah. podcast that that was my film of the year. Yeah, and is it, we'll get on to if it's remained there. Um, and then Last Black Man in San Francisco, which for me is probably one of the strongest titles. It came at a really interesting angle and talks about gentrification in San Francisco and how the people have been priced out of the market, but it was doing it in a very poetic uh, way and a dialogue between the main characters and the relationship between them was really interesting and well done and I was really pleased that it kind of came from nowhere as it were um, but registered strongly with a watershed audience so I was pleased that we kept it for you know two or three weeks um, so that was good but Moving on to British cinema. Hang on, you didn't mention Jordan Peele's Us. Oh, sorry. Oh, yes. <laughs> sorry. Which is yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So good. In fact, I saw it in the cinema twice. Yeah. <laughs> so there are good films coming out of America. So on to British cinema. Mm. We mentioned earlier that it's, it's been a strong year. Certainly one of my favourites is in there, which is uh, Richard Billingham's Ray and Liz. Again. It's up there for me too. Fantastic. Uh, is that, so that uh, was March, I think, early in the year, and I was, was completely bowled over by it and I that's the kind of British cinema that I really uh, love to see it reminded me of of um, 
Bill Douglas, the Bill Douglas yeah. trilogy, it reminded me of Terence Davis trilogy. In the way in which, all my favourite <laughs> British filmmakers. In the, in the way in which it takes distressing, well, distressing, dysfunctional, working class experience um, and portrays it on screen um, in a um, quite amazingly poetic and cinematic way. Also, the key, I think, is, yes, it is poetic and cinematic, but it also, and it's very difficult, this is, this is the thing that's hard to do, and this is what Richard Billingham really achieves, is that it neither glorifies nor ghettoizes that, that lifestyle. Um, it portrays it in an honest and earnest way, and I think that sincerity really comes through in the way that it does with Terence Davies and Bill Douglas. Yeah. But I think a lot of filmmakers, when we think about this, particularly when people complain about, oh, British cinema is so boring and miserable and this and that, <coughs> is actually, I think what they're, they're, they're saying when, when they're complaining about that is they're talking about a type of British cinema that is derivative mm. of this type of British cinema, that is trying to kind of show something, but maybe, like, the point of view is not really honest enough or it's not sincere and that there's absolutely no judgment of the characters it, yes there 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 are situations that are quite abrasive or affecting as an audience member but you don't feel like the filmmaker is harshly um, unfairly pityingly or jeeringly judging these characters and I think that's really important mm. but it, it does it does for me come in a, a, a tradition of British cinema that is not in that sort of what's been pegged as kitchen sink, social yeah. realist stuff. I do think that, you know, Ken Loach, we're sorry we missed you, has actually moved into politics and moved mm -hmm. away from people. Whereas what Ray and Liz is about is about people. Um, yeah. And there's an authenticity to it and, and as you say, a non-judgmental uh, quality to it. But it's told in a way which, I mean, it, it, you know, there's a longer discussion to be had about what this essential cinematic is. But I, I thought it was, and again, he came down and talked about the film. Richard Billingham, of course, is known for his photographs. He's known for his photographs. I mean, he's a he's he's a Turner-nominated photographer, artist, and his, he's known for his photographs of his family, of his mother and father, Ray and Liz, and he shows them in all their sort of splendid uh, glory, you know, and all their um, peccadillos um, and extremities. And but there is a there is a warmth to it. Uh, I think, which comes through in the film. But what was interesting, what he was talking about, was in, in this kind of chaos of this working-class council estate in Dudley in 1970s, the television was on nearly all the time, and it was natural history programmes. I mean, both him and his brother had found sort of distractions or found solace in nature, in nature programmes. And there's a great scene where they go to Dudley Zoo, which is just extraordinarily um, surreal. But... On that television, and that's the thing that speaks to my generation, on that television came a Robert Bresson film, uh, A Man Escaped, and the young Richard Billingham was just entranced by this film. It just you know, came out of nowhere. It came into his living room, into this sort of chaos of his living room, and he was really struck by it. He was struck by the aspect ratio. I mean, all the things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think at the time, but obviously as he's gone on his career, he was struck by the way the camera didn't move like other things that he'd seen on television, the way the aspect ratio was really tight, the way the lighting was, the way the story was told. And you can see that in Ray and Liz. I mean, there's an absolute sort of relationship there. So it was a really, and it was a wonderful illustration of assumptions you somehow make that, you know, those, that, that, you know, that, those people won't like that film because of this or that. And you just think, no, no, make it available, let people, <laughs> let people watch it and let them decide. Um, but again, going on 
So British cinema, what, mm. what was, was there a highlight for you, Thea? Well, the one I was, I was surprised by was uh, John Hogg's Souvenir. Mm. Um, I really didn't think I was going to like it, um, so I went in a bit begrudgingly. Um, <laughs> however, I was so wrong. Um, Did you hate Archipelago? You, yes, I really, yeah, uh, that I really just was like, um, <laughs> I'm not on board for this, I don't care about mm -hmm. you, and I know that's the point, but I just... No, no, I think <coughs> it's an interesting divide, because some people, yeah, it really works, and for some people it doesn't, but Souvenir yeah. worked for you. Oh, totally, I was, yeah. um, I was completely absorbed by the characters, and by the story, and also by the aesthetics, well, it looks really beautiful, so the pastel colours, but also how it contrasts um, some of the darker sort of earthy tones of the red and the blacks in, um, when they're in the museum and they go to look at the portrait of the souvenir. Um, and I was, I just thought it was so wonderful. Um, yeah, I'd agree with you. I really liked Souvenir as well. I mean, it's not quite in my top list, but that's only because there were so many other really great films. Mm -hmm. But I, 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 would, I would like to, I think Farming um, it was, yes. was, was, it was an exceptional um, film from Adewala. Akanua Agbaji. Can I just say, I have never gone in knowing so little and then come out and been like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Because I, first of all, I didn't know the filmmaker and then obviously looked on IMDb and was like, wow, this is a really famous yeah, yeah, actor yeah. who, you know, has, has been doing loads and loads of things. Um, but also I didn't know about farming, what it actually was. Yes, no, I mean, the, like, I, th I think, you know, when you just see the title, you <laughs> yeah. of course think it's, it's got to be about farms. So everything about this film just blew me away. I yeah. thought it was, yeah. I, I really think, very talented filmmaking. I disagree. Um, I thought, I think the story is quite astonishing. And that's what, for me, I, I was still uh, engaged with the film because I think the story is really great. However, I just, I don't think it's, in terms of the characterization, I wanted more. I wanted it to be better for me. I wanted the character development of um, the main character's mother, Kate Beckett. I wanted to know more about her. I wanted to know more about each of the characters. Mm. But I wanted to know more about him. I know the point is the fact that he's so broken, that he's so insular, that he can't express himself. But I wanted, I just wanted more. I, I, I'm just going to say, just very briefly, is that I, I, I thought it, the thing about farming for me was it was a, it was a really interesting contribution to discussions about race and class mm. in British cinema. And I think it's a really important film from that point of view. Two other films, yeah. Peter Strickland's In Fabric um, and Mark Jenkins' Bait, uh, which was an incredibly uh, wonderful local production from Cornwall this year, filmmaker yeah. that we had come talk about his film and I, I think a real moment for British yeah. cinema. Tara, Bait is the story of the year. It is. It's absolutely the story of the year, and I, I had the great privilege to follow it from, from Berlin when it first screened, and it came out with five-star reviews from The Guardian, and all the way through, took students out to see it in Berlin, and it was just such a brilliant, when the students are learning how, fest how important festivals are and how yeah. festivals can make films, and there's this film bait, and there's the two producers from, you know, down the road in Bristol, so got them all together, and that was great. So, you know, spill forward to when the film gets released in August, and I did have to say to Kate and Lynn, the producers, um, look, and, uh, you know, it's been great, fantastic journey, love you to bits, and, you know, film's fantastic, but I've got to be realistic about this film when it comes to scheduling it at Watershed, so when you see it's on in a small screen please forgive me you know um <laughs> you know success though would look like it it, it might go it might play a couple of shows in a bigger screen and we might hold it for a second week because that would be really great because i think they all have to be realistic about its box office potential even the distributor the bfi were thinking <laughs> it would take about eighty thousand pounds at the box office 
it's one of our hit, biggest hits. It's probably going to be the second after the favourite yeah. debate. It's been a brilliant story. It's taken half a million at the UK box office. And uh, it played at Watershed for about eight or nine weeks. And we're bringing it back over Christmas. And I think that is, I mean, it is the story of the year in terms of British cinema. Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, so, top fives. In reverse order, please. Number five, John McEnroe in the realm of perfection. Yep, fantastic. That, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's how you make a documentary. <laughs> that is indeed how you make a documentary. Number four, Rain Liz. Okay. Number three, Ash's Purest White. Number two, In Fabric, Peter Strickland, Water Film. Uh, and number one is If Bill Street Could Talk. Honestly, if you have not seen this film or if you... For some reason, somebody told you foolishly that it's slow. Just ignore all of that. Oh. You've got to see it. It is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the, the, looking at this film, let alone the actual amazing topic, and it's just wonderful. Okay, number five um, is Capernaum. Um, number four, I think, is Birds of Passage, Ciro Guerra's okay. um, yep. film. Number three is The Nightingale, which you unfortunately haven't been able to talk about, mm. but... Um, there's a lot to say about there's that. There's a movie. lot to say. That's a whole separate podcast, yes. sorry. Um, <laughs> number two, If Bill Street Could Talk. Again, just Great. warm and woozy and amazing. Uh, number one is So Long My Son, which mm. got me for six. I thought it was just a mm. beautiful family drama. Mm. Oh, good, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. And I should say that um, The Nightingale, So Long My Son, opens this month. <laughs> so for me, it's The Nightingale, number five. It does take a whole podcast, but I tell you, it earns its... That film earns its violence. Um, yes, it does. It uh, absolutely does. And it is violent. Um, we we yeah, you, just, no... just say that. Yeah. But, you know, lots of films are. Yes, it is. Um, Leto, the Russian film, which I thought was brilliant in terms of capturing a moment and the kind of what music can do. Uh, a season in France, actually, I don't think we mentioned. Um, no, I missed that. That's actually that, probably why that I haven't from, mentioned um, it. The Chadian born director, Mohamed Sally Haroun, um, who's now based in, in Paris. Um, I think it was really quiet but hugely powerful filmmaking. Again, talking about the migration situation, um, and it has one of the most devastating shots at the end. And I'm going to say it, so plot spoiler: it ends with when you realise it's ending in this kind of wasteland, which was the jungle in Cali, the infamous sort of jungle, and it's completely empty. And of course, what you then are left to think about is where have those people gone? It was a hugely powerful film. So long, my son. You can see it this month. And then, yeah, Rain Liz, I think, is, the, for me, the outstanding film of the year. So just to wind up, what is it? Can I just say one repertory film that was really uh, Well, we haven't even talked, Tara, just we haven't one. even talked about <laughs> repertory one. or cinema rediscovered. Just one Go repertory on. film, uh, which is Barry Jenkins' Medicine for yes. Melancholy, oh, which yeah. we did when we were celebrating If Bill Street Could Talk, and wow, did that knock my socks off. What a film. Well, then we can start talking about adoption and yeah. we can start talking about uh, where do we, where do we, where do we... So, it's, so what we're saying, though, is cinema is very much alive. I think we're definitely saying that. What we're also saying for December is that there are some of the films that we've mentioned are on. We're also going to be screening, Tara, you'll be pleased to know, if Beale Street could talk, because, again, that was one of the top films. So we're showing some of the top films, performing films at Watershed. So the favourite... Go and see it. If Beale Street could talk, <laughs> Bait, Pain and Glory, and I'm very pleased to say... Amazing Grace. Brilliant. Aretha Which I Franklin. I haven't seen, so I can't wait to go and see that. Captured in her in situ in a, a Baptist gospel church, singing her 
heart out for God and it is fantastic and it will be a great Christmas experience for you to see that film. That is all for this month. Thank you very much, Tara and Theo. Thank you.